Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're going to be talking about character development in role-playing games. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? Well, if you like me staring at the same four walls all the time, one thing that can help pass the time is we've been continuing our backer-only specials. So we've been talking about various films, TV and such that have we found either inspiring or just entertaining, really, over the last few weeks. So we're putting those out on the off weeks, aside from the, the regular show that goes out. Yeah, and as ever, we're talking about how they might inspire your Call of Cthulhu games. So it's it's not just us wittering on, but it's mostly us wittering on. <laughs> also, in another month or two, we'll have our fanzine out. This will be a PDF copy going out to all our Patreon backers. And it's licensed by Chaosium. It'll have a new Call of Cthulhu scenario in it, written by Scott. Yeah, it's called The Murder Shack, and it's about a murder shack. It's a fairly simple little thing that is designed to be customizable according to, you know, where in the world you live, time period, stuff like that. But it's really just sort of a bit of nastiness that you can use as the kernel for more nastiness. There's always a murder shack within one mile of where any investigator lives. <laughs> yes. And if you have any contributions that you'd like to make, uh, whether they be short articles or pieces of artwork, then please send them in. We'd love to see them. And also, I think around the time this episode should be going out, I and mean, we do record these a fair bit in advance, so it's difficult to say, but I think around now, or very shortly afterwards, I should be making a guest appearance on the Ain't Slade Nobody podcast. They did a special recording with me. It's not part of their novel Down Darker Trails run. We played Cthulhu Dark together, and we played the Fairyland scenario that I published for that some time back. Yeah, it went absolutely brutally during play. I'm really looking forward to hearing how the edit comes out. Well, as per normal, me trawling the net for bargains over eBay or any new RPG goodness coming out on Kickstarter, I ran across a project that's just been launched by a friend of ours. Raphael Chandler's put out a uh, new Kickstarter just in the last couple of days. Oh, rock. The Metallic Tome, a source book for OSR games. That's showing this almost apocalyptic near future where everything that the metal bands warned us about in the 80s has come to pass. And the only thing that can save us now is metal. Yeah, look, quite a tongue-in-cheek little source book there. That does sound like the pure essence of Raphael. Was metal warning us against things? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> I mean, I guess in some ways, yeah. You, you aren't yeah. listening to the message properly. That's, that's the problem. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I'm off to run to the hills. Better than running around the woods. And now on to our main topic, character development. Well, unless you're playing a one-shot, characters will change and develop during play. This traditionally in RPGs is advancement, but as we'll examine, that's not always the case. It depends on the game you're playing. We'll look, I think, at both how characters change and advance mechanically and also how they do narratively. I mean, one of the things I was considering when thinking about this topic was characters in role-playing games, not all role-playing games, but a lot of role-playing games, they start off fairly low level level being a key word in the history of the games and then they you know they escalate and they they get more powerful they get stronger they get you know more skills whatever what about actual real people <laughs> you know, how does that compare to like you matt did you start off like a i don't know a level one accountant and now you're like level 10 <laughs> no my accountancy skill is fairly low because a credit analyst will tear apart accounts they don't put them together Ah, oh, okay. No, I can see a few parallels thinking of how I've leveled up throughout the course of my career. Maybe with proficiency in computer programs being the best example, that when I started with the job, I didn't know how to put together macros. I wasn't familiar too much with coding or VBA or anything like that. And then 
roll around a few years later and it's stuff that I'm having to do pretty much central for the team I work in now. The acquisition of new skills definitely is something that, or the development of existing skills and advancement of those is definitely something that does happen in real life. But could you take more blows to the head now than you could <laughs> a few years ago? Because <laughs> most role-playing games, somehow you kind of get so much tougher and harder to kill. Uh, Not all, but... No, no, I've seen myself more like the Cthulhu advancement that I've ticked my computer use skill enough times, but my con and my size still remain pretty much exactly the same. (laughs) So, therefore, my hit points have not improved. I think part of that is based on, well, a, a couple of things. One is that as we grow up, as we go through puberty and as we reach adulthood, yes, we do, on the whole, become physically fitter and stronger and and more resilient. So perhaps that's sort of built into our expectations somehow. And yeah, there is this idea that we learn as we go on. But I think what isn't reflected in a lot of games is the fact that skills atrophy as well. So for example, I did have a career in IT for a great many years, and I'd like to think I was fairly good at a lot of the technical stuff I did. Nowadays, I've forgotten almost all of it. If you tried to get me to act as a system administrator these days, I would be absolutely hopeless at it. Yeah, and I mean, they don't use punch cards and stuff like that anymore, Scott. No, no, no. It's it's all been downhill since then. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember half of the A-level maths stuff I did. Mm -hmm. I'd look at some of my notebooks now and think, how many letters are in this goddamn equation? What the hell do they mean? You need to keep ticking these skills, otherwise they disappear. <laughs> well, yeah, there is, there really is an element of that, and I, I genuinely cannot think. I'm sure there must be one of these hideously crunchy '90s games yeah. that does this, but I, I genuinely cannot think of a game where skills degrade and atrophy through lack of use. <laughs> I didn't. I thought this might be a useful discussion in terms of games design. I didn't think we'd be <laughs> creating a new game where you, where you just kind of. Start off okay and then just go downhill from there. Use it or lose it, the RPG. (laughs) But I think something else that we see in in role-playing games is the acquisition of stuff. And Mm. I guess on the whole, you know, if you think of us from like, say, teenage, like 15, 16-year-olds when you're at school, you don't necessarily have access to all that much finances and stuff. And as you reach adulthood and you get a job and so on, you know, you start to acquire more worldly goods. Mm which is kind of comparable with your, your D&D character going out and collecting gold on some level. So I've got more stuff now than I used to have, I guess, mm. is what I'm saying. My, my yeah. library is testament to this. I just seem to be increasing in the number of books I have on an almost daily basis. <laughs> you, you have a plus one Billy bookshelf of holding. There's also the physical aspects as well. A, a lot of fiction, as well as a lot of RPGs, play on with, you know, as you, well, for a start, get older, but also perhaps physically train, you get... A, a better at physical stuff that's very much a part of heroic fiction it's not necessarily part of life for everyone apart from anything else once you get past a certain age you start going downhill as i'm, I'm sure you can attest to paul I mean, certainly i can what are you saying once you reach the age of 50 or so, things start breaking. Everything starts going wrong. You are trapped in a rotting chassis of meat that is failing in weird and bizarre ways all the fucking time. I thought it was just your movement rate decreased every 10 years. What's the problem? <laughs> Look, I told you not to transport yourself from that thing into that teleport device. <laughs> I told you it wouldn't work well, Scott. I seem to have fused myself with the geriatric. <laughs> Moving on, I mean... There is a question like, why do role-playing games have advancement? And we've just sort of discussed how, yeah, we we progressed to some degree in real life, so it sort of makes sense that that characters would do as well. But what other purposes does advancement have in role-playing games? Well, I think part of it is genre emulation, because they're looking back at heroic fantasies and stories about great warriors and so on. That gentle type of fiction that's known as Bildungsroman. Mm-hmm. The type of fiction where you're looking at the the coming of age and growth and development of a character as they're coming to their own and developing new skills and new ways of coping with the world and achieving their potential. And I think that was so baked into early concepts of RPGs that it became the focus for a lot of players. That is a term I've not heard since my university days. I mean, I'd say it's motivation as well, because you're playing a game... And you want to improve, you want to get more stuff, you want to 
up your skills. You want to, if you're playing a board game, if you're playing Monopoly, you want to buy more places and you want to acquire, get more money. If you're playing a role-playing game, often that is part of the appeal, I think, is um, you know improving your character. Yeah, I sort of buy that to some extent. And certainly, you know, I have played games where I've really enjoyed that aspect of it. At the same time, there... I mean, it depends how much you look at games as genre emulation and how much you look at them as their own thing. So, I mean, let's take a, a fairly classic example. Not one of my favourites, but I think it fits the, the mode well here. Think about Star Wars. So mm. you've got a character like Luke Skywalker, who starts off ostensibly as a farm boy. So you might think of that in D&D terms as, you know, a level one, you know, whatever. Mm. But almost immediately, he's picking up new skills. He's learning how to use the lightsaber. He's learning how to use the force. I mean, he develops a bit more as the, uh, the films go on, but he is from the outset pretty damn powerful in terms of plot immunity and in terms of, you know, some of the things he can do. And I think. What a lot of particularly licensed RPGs, but RPGs in general tended to do, was downplay that, that you wanted to go into the games playing characters who were as cool as the canon characters in the setting. But there was this whole aspect of, well, no, you've got to start off as a peon and earn your fun. And eventually, if you're lucky, if you play this game for six years, you might be able to play someone cool. But don't you think if you're going to have advancement, you can't start as that like really powerful character? You've kind of got to start as the low level farm boy the zero level character or the first level character because then that allows in the game for there to be you know mm. a a scheme of progress through and steps that you can go through to and increments that you can increase through if you start off as you know the jedi master it's like well i'm already a jedi master how am i going to improve but you have games like superhero games or something like Exalted, where you hmm. start off playing incredibly powerful characters, but you still advance. You still pick up new skills, new abilities. You might enhance the power of your existing abilities, but there is still that advancement built in. But it doesn't have that expectation that you have to start off powerless and, and build up to playing the character that you want. Right. You get so far, you even have to buy a second bucket for dice as well. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it is that expectation of what kind of game you want to play. Or I don't think the idea that you have to start off from zero and, like I say, earn your fun is a given. Is just something that we inherited from basic D&D or original D&D and has perhaps taken a while for a lot of RPGs to shake off. But in that example you gave, the superhero game, I mean, is a, a starting character a lot it, albeit starts off with quite a few powers because they're superheroes right so mm. they kind of need to be a superhero but is a starting character considerably less powerful than a you know the one that's been you've been playing for six months or a year sure but at the same time there isn't that thing where for example if you think back to particularly older versions of D, let's say you're playing a wizard and you start off, or a magic user, you start mm. off at first level, and yeah, you can cast something like light or detect evil or yeah, uh, comprehend languages or something like that, which is hardly earth-shattering. It's uh, a very simple utility thing. If you're playing, say, a superhero game, yes, I mean, you might start off being able to fly and shoot laser beams out of your eyes and, you know, bounce bullets off your chest. But as your character develops, you'll pick up new powers and you'll enhance those ones and you'll be able to go up against tougher villains and stuff like that. But it's not like you're, you're starting off as just this, this street kid. Maybe he can't shoot lasers out of his eyes yet, but he can make them glow a bit so he can see in the dark. I mean, I guess a plus of having a game where you start off at fairly low level is that for those kind of games where death is quite common, like DCC, Dungeon Crawl Classics, you can gen up a character pretty quick for that, but they're like zero level. But it allows also to have a learning curve. So you, you, you start off with that character, you can give somebody one of those on a piece of paper the size of your palm, and they've got the character... And you pretty quickly grasp everything that's on the sheet. But then, as if it survives, which is unlikely, as you climb up through the levels, uh, you know, you acquire more and more stuff and the character becomes more and more complex. But you don't have to take all that on board immediately. So that development allows you to learn 
as you as your character develops. You know, you learn the utility of all the things that it can do and make choices as you go. It depends so much on the kind of game that you're expecting to play. So, yes, if it is a game like that where you're starting off with a character that is almost a blank slate and you're adding to them and so on and discovering what they can do, then, yeah, I mean, that's fine. But if you're playing a perhaps... You know, a more complex game, not not mechanically, but in terms of the themes and the character depth, where you, you start off with a more fully realised idea for a character and you want to perhaps explore the moral decisions that they have to make or the challenges that they'll, they'll have to face in order to pursue a goal, then having a game where there isn't much longevity in that character. So, you know, let, let's say that you're playing something like Sorcerer and you create the Sorcerer and your kicker is that you've suddenly got new information about the bizarre magical accident that befell your husband some time back and, you know, you now realise that it was some form of supernatural murder. And this kicker gets you moving so that you're there to try to explore, understand what happened and perhaps face up against your own culpability in this. If you've got all that in mind, if you, you know, think, right, oh yeah, this is a character concept I'm really interested in, you know, th this is a long-term goal, I want to see how this plays out, and then you die in the second session, it's going to be a bit shit. Been there. A lot. So let's take a look at how characters advance in role-playing games. There's a variety of different ways the advances can be kind of triggered or activated, or perhaps they're just automatic. You know, not just necessarily advances, but changes. Uh, and sometimes that's for good or bad. Different games approach this from different angles. I mean, we're not going to look at every different game, but look at some different ways that this happens. You may be starting off with the, the starting one of like, you know, experience points that were mm. just a, a kind of bunch of points you got. And then when you acquired enough, you climbed up a level. But there's also the idea then once you, you buy into experience points, as to how those experience points are earned. And that's mm. obviously a big part of what then drives that character. So traditionally in d and I mean, you earn those by killing monsters. But then you have variants of D&D where you don't get XP for killing monsters, but you get them for acquiring treasure. So that records a, a different kind of play. Or sometimes you have games like, say, Unknown Armies, where you get XP that are awarded according to how well everyone at the table thinks you've been playing your character. When XP covers a lot of different things. Mm. How many games are out there that just use XP and levels like D&D? &D? It doesn't seem to be a, a concept that is actually that common, or am I wrong about that? I think it's as, as Scott said, it all determines by how the XP is awarded. If it's something like, oh, I killed this dragon, I've got X many thousand, or I've just turned up to a game, so I've got one XP. It all depends on scale. It's all on how it's awarded, I think, that's the key distinction between them. So I can think of several games where it's just, hey, here's your XP, it's just how you spend it then is different whether it's the accumulation of oh i've hit this number so therefore i've leveled up or it's hey i want to buy this next dot on my sheet therefore it costs five times whatever amount of xp that yeah it just depends on how it's used and how it's awarded but i mean you specifically mentioned levels there paul and i think that's i mean that's yeah. very particularly a DD thing i'm sure there are games outside the d20 penumbra that use levels but off the top of my head i'm struggling to think of any it seems like the kind of thing when you think about role-playing games, because D&D is so common, it almost seems like levels must be ubiquitous. But And like you say, I'm sure there are other games that, that use them, but I don't think it's something that's really, you know, like mm. almost, I'd say the vast majority of games have hit points and, you know, the various things that we see in D&D, but not that many maybe have levels. Well, I'm sure our listeners will write in and tell us all the really obvious games that we've forgotten here. <laughs> but at the moment, yeah, my, my mind is blank on this. I think Savage Worlds is probably the only other one I can think of outside of D&D &D that has levels, because they all have different names from oh. what I remember, because you get, you get up to Legendary, I remember being one level name, and you get advancements for each level that you get. That's definitely one other one I can think of that does it. Yeah, it's a long time since I played mm. Savage Worlds. I've forgotten how that worked. You could probably argue the new version of Cult does as well, because admittedly, while it's playbook, so it's still powered by the apocalypse, there are various different levels of playbook that you can get. You can either be a sleeper, you can be enlightened, you can be awakened, or 
I'm just aware there's yeah there's lots of different versions and they they in their own way they have different power levels as as you go up the tree. Mm. And I suppose there's an element of that with unknown armies as well in that you've got street level, global, and cosmic mm. level. Those are more starting expectations for a campaign. You can obviously level up effectively from, say, street level to global level within the course mm-hmm. of a game. I don't think I've ever actually been part of a game where that's happened. I've only ever seen it as that's been the starting level or the starting mm. point for the game that just sets how much XP you get in character gen. I've never seen it develop from one to the next. Mm. But this whole idea of what you get XP for, what the reward mechanism is, I think is one of the more interesting parts of game design. One thing I've come to like is games like, I think it happens in Apocalypse World and some of the Powered by the Apocalypse games, where you gain XP for failing. Yeah, in Monster Hearts and Monster of the Week, certainly when you fail something, you get you tick it, and then you, you can use those points to buy new moves and so on. Yeah. Because I think that serves two purposes. One is it incorporates that whole idea of you learn by your mistakes, which I like. I, thematically, I think that's a good one. But also, it makes failure more interesting, less disappointing. Mm. In a good game, I mean, failure shouldn't be boring anyway, as as we discussed in our Joy of Failure episode, that you shouldn't just have the result be nothing happens. It should be something bad but interesting happens. The idea that you get rewarded for failure, I think, certainly takes some of the sting out. Whereas in Call of Cthulhu, of course, you get rewarded for success. When you successfully use a skill, you get to tick it, and then it's not automatic gain, but you may then, you know, later uh, improve that skill. By failing the role. <laughs> By failing the role, but it's kind of a, it's still through success, right? Mm-hmm. That you actually activate it. One of the games that handles that dichotomy in the most interesting way is Hot War, because that has advancement or at least change conditions for both success and failure that every role in it is an opposed role and you you count the number of successes that one person has over the other whether that's the gm or whether it's player versus player each one of those successes allows you to buy consequences and those are either good things for your character or bad things for your opponent so that can be driving their stats down killing them complicating their relationships giving them a new toxic relationship or a new good relationship Or it can be, one of my favourite aspects, is rewriting traits. So if one of your traits is, for example, confident in any situation, you end up having a a failed contest with someone, they can rewrite that and say something like megalomaniac or overconfident or takes dangerous risks. And that, that is still fundamentally the same trait, but it's been flipped on its head and turned into something dangerous. And mm. yeah, I really like that aspect of play. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, another thing, not character advancement, perhaps, but kind of game advancement is getting stuff. And in Call of Cthulhu, I mean, I've certainly seen you go for this, Matt, is um, not mm-hmm. only you're know, aiming to, well, aiming to increase Cthulhu mythos skill, but through acquiring like uh, mythos tomes or mythos artifacts and so on. You've always been pretty motivated to do that as a player, I've found. Yeah, because sanity is like a lead weight around your neck. You get rid of that and you can suddenly do a hell of a lot more school stuff. (laughs) But, I mean, do you view that as kind of a character development, character advancement thing? Depends on the character and depends on the situation. But generally, yeah, the more mythos I get, the more I'm winning. I agree with that because there are so many interesting things, particularly in 7th edition, that you can do with Cthulhu Mythos, with spontaneous use of the Cthulhu Mythos skill. It's very rare that I get to play a campaign of Call of Cthulhu these days, but I played a couple of playtests a couple of years ago with Chaosium. I played one for the Curse of Seven campaign, which hasn't been published yet, but the character I played acquired a fair amount of Cthulhu Mythos skill during the course of the campaign, and also acquired a mania after a bout of insanity that was related to becoming obsessed with magic. And from that point onwards, I took every opportunity I could to make spontaneous use of the Cthulhu Mythos skill rolls with my 20-odd percent in Cthulhu Mythos. And if I failed the first roll, I'd always push it, because, yeah, something would happen. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I'm determined to take inspiration from some of your tales from that playtest, thinking of particularly percussive investigation, because <laughs> I just think that is a fantastic idea. <laughs> <laughs> See an NPC, smash it in the face. 
plot falls out. NPC pinata. It's the only way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the only downside about like advancing through equipment that I see. I mean, it's different with Mythos Tomes because you get the Mythos Tome and you kind of absorb it into your character, like with Mythos knowledge. But if it's just, let's say, you know, you're finding a magic sword and that's your advancement, then there's always that anxiety perhaps that the GM's going to take those toys away from you? I mean, a lot of that is baked into the game system. So, I mean, for example, if you think of the hero system, particularly champions, but this can apply to fantasy hero if you're playing a D&D type game, any piece of equipment you get in that is something that you buy through experience points. So you can't just kind of go to a shop in champions and buy a rocket launcher, or an automatic rifle. Your character has to spend the points on, say, getting that killing attack, that ranged killing attack, that corresponds with that that weapon. You can make that cheaper by saying that it's an item that is obvious and accessible. What that means is it can be taken away from you, but only temporarily. And so that tends to be a plot device. So, you know, it'd be something like Thor having his magic hammer taken away. You know at some point he's going to get that or a replacement back. But it may prove a plot point while he's temporarily imprisoned or has to try to Mm. get him back from his arch enemy or whatever. In that, the advancement through equipment is fundamentally no different than advancing skills and advancing powers. They're all bought in exactly the same way. No, I mean, that sounds a pretty cool idea, but I mean, I don't think that's the case in most games, right? Most games, you get some cool equipment and you've got to try and hang on to it, you know, hide that mythos tome in the wall (laughs) or something like that so the keeper doesn't have some cultists come and steal it when you're out as has happened repeatedly yes (laughs) (laughs) and it takes weeks to read those things but how that happens in a game i think can be fun depending on well how much you trust the keeper and how much of a dick the keeper is Hmm. because if you have a keeper who every time you get a cool mythos artifact for a tome or something like that you know has cultists turn up and steal it and you never see it again well that's no fun at all But if you're staying in a creepy old boarding house full of weird people and someone has taken that protective talisman that you got that stops the the many angled ones coming during the night and eating your soul, then suddenly you've got a plot hook as you go through the boarding house trying to shake down everyone and find out who's taken that fucking talisman. Mm. And we're back to punching them in the face to get what you want. Yeah. And some games use improvement through milestones. I mean, this milestones is a term from 5e that you can award experience, you know, as they uh, defeat the troll or whatever, they get some XP. Or not, That's that sounds more like classic D&D. No, it's more like they... Manage to make it to the old dark castle on the hill. Yeah, or they get back to the village alive or whatever. You know, there's some sort of milestone sort of set in the game. Not necessarily the end of the adventure, but as milestones imply, sort of steps along the path. And those can be kind of narrative steps rather than killing monsters or finding gold. And I think we see the same thing in Cthulhu, right? That you see the milestone, really. That's that's what Cthulhu uses, the end of the chapter or the end of the scenario, mm. uh, or like a usually one of those two. Uh, and that's when you, you don't necessarily get experience, but that's when you get the investigative development phase where you can apply those things and change your character or... You know, role for skill improvements and so on. They all happen at the same time, whereas I can think of, again, using cults as an example with mm. Divinity Lost. They call them rather than milestones, dramatic hooks, that when your character achieves a particular goal, then you gain an XP. And at the end of the session, you can cash that in. That means that people can advance at very different rates, depending on if they, in the course of the narrative, are able to check off these goals quicker than other people. And who sets those goals? Are they baked into the character sheet or do the, does the player create their own goals for the scenario? Or I think it can change between a combination of the key, uh, what was I say, the keep of the, um, the GM hmm. setting them and the player setting them as well. That's, that's when I've played it. I don't generally use them very much because I only really run one shots of cult. So I've never had opportunity to use dramatic hooks, but I have played in a game where they have been used and it was a combination of the, say, the GM and the player coming up with them. And I think an interesting variant on that is what Sorcerer does. In Sorcerer, as I mentioned before, you've got kickers. So the kicker is a problem or a mystery or something personal that the player comes up with that is related to their character, that kicks the character into motion. It's it's the mystery that they've got to solve, the problem they've got to address. At some point during the game, your character may well 
resolve that kicker. Maybe they'll find out the mystery of what exactly did happen to their husband. And at that stage, the character changes, but it's not like advancement. So you basically go th- go through and rewrite your character sheet. You don't improve anything, but your stats may get rearranged and you get a new kicker and other aspects of it may change. But it's not like this building throne approach where you are improving and getting better and getting more powerful. It's just your circumstances have changed and you're now something else. Mm. And that also happens in Monster Hearts, doesn't it, Paul? Yeah, I mean, in Monster Hearts, you, you can take on new moves, but then at a certain point, your character progresses such that you could start to take adult moves because you're playing kind of like teenagers in Monster Hearts. So you can shift on to being an adult and you almost stop being a player character, if I recall correctly, at that point. There's a, there's a point at which you kind of retire your character, I think. There are a few possibilities that you get that when you hit one of these big milestones, yeah, you can retire the character, you can completely change their playbook or their skin in Monster Hearts terms Mm. so that they become a different kind of monster. So, for example, when I ran a Monster Hearts campaign a while back, we had a character who died halfway through the campaign at one of these big milestone points. And instead of retiring the character, the player changed the skin so the character went from being an infernal to a ghost. And Mm. their ghost was there for the the rest of the campaign. What about rewards for role-playing or performance at the table that you kind of see in some games that they're not just like oh here's a point that you can kind of spend to do something in a minute some games i think have a kind of almost like an xp system that relies on that kind of reward fan mail it's fan mail about character advancement and development No. no it's more just like like luck points you can spend to do something isn't it yeah it's probably the closest thing in prime time adventures though to developing the characters. Remember, right, the sheet doesn't really change that much, does it? So that is the closest thing in, in that game. But it's also that very spontaneous thing that, hey, you've done something good in game, have a reward. I think what Paul mentioned is subtly different. But I've certainly seen some RPGs where there's instructions for the GM to give rewards to players according to how well they're role playing. And personally, I always think that's a bit shit because it is so arbitrary. The only game I can think of which does something like that, which I like, is Unknown Armies, because it puts the decision in the hands of everyone at the table. It's been a while since I've looked at this, but I seem to remember one of the criteria there is who played their character best this session. Mm. And you know, everyone at the table has to vote on that, so it's not like the GM just playing favourites. I think Benny's have come in Savage Worlds as well. They do a similar kind of thing. But again, they're GM awarded. You can either cash your Bennies in to give you benefits on rolls, or you can hoard them for XP. Yeah, I'm really not a fan of it. It feels like, you know, we're all there to have fun and sort of do our best, and then we're kind of being judged all the time. Yeah. I don't, I really don't like that feeling. The only reason I can see for having it, and, you know, this applies more to the democratic approach of something like UA rather than just a GM only one is that it allows you know everyone at the table to express their appreciation of someone who's been particularly entertaining that session. Yeah, even that isn't particularly fair because there are always going to be some people who are just kind of more outgoing or you know funnier or better able to think on their feet. Yeah, there's usually like one or two people who are very entertaining and like in the group dynamic that's fine, but if they're constantly getting rewarded for that and you're sat there and you're more bit more introverted and you don't sort of act like that then you kind of feel like oh you know you don't get points for that (laughs) i can see the argument that it encourages role playing and it encourages engagement but yeah yeah i guess it works for some people but yeah i'm not a fan well it's based on that idea that you will draw people out of their shells you will encourage them to role play by giving them mechanical rewards and yeah i think that is a very dangerous assumption for the reason you said i'm sure i've told the story on the podcast before i remember running a convention game years and years ago where i had a table where there were three very experienced middle-aged role players and one teenage boy and i think it was his first convention and he'd come along and he was i think very shy to begin with and so you had this this whole bunch of very loud outgoing old louts there and this one nervous kid I picked up on the fact almost immediately that he was you know, very quiet and very shy. 
and tried to draw him out, and realised fairly quickly that the more I did this, the worse it was making things, that by putting the spotlight on mm. him, I was causing him to shrink him even more. And I think, yeah, this is a a risk that you've got with something like this as well, that it's putting pressure on shy players to... Yeah, you know, I mean, going outside your comfort zone is good sometimes, but for some people, it's really not. And yeah. if if they don't want to, you shouldn't expect it. We've talked about these different types of character advancement. Do you think these different types of character advancement actually have an impact on how we play the game? Does it actually influence the way you, you know, when you if you play a game that rewards failure rather than one that rewards success, or you play one that uses milestones or rewards you through equipment or whatever, these different approaches, does it actually influence that much how you play the game? Or do you just play your character anyway and, you know, soak that stuff up? I think there's maybe a part of that. I suppose the cynical answer for part of me was almost thinking, well, if the game does X, Y, or Z, then I don't play it because I don't enjoy that style of game. And mm. But I think advancement is only part of that. It's not the be-all and end-all by any means. Also, there's that kind of murder-hobo instinct that kind of comes out that you know, I'm starting off as a fairly normal character, but the minute I become powerful, it's a pick up a shotgun, hey, let's go on a murder rampage! Uh, that it can just widen your angle of the kind of shit that you can get away with in play. So yeah, I think it maybe does. But again, it's all it's all a sliding scale. It all depends on context. I tend to find my character and my play style are affected by these things, but not in that I set out to game the system, but it's more dealing with the consequences. And I think the classic example of that is Dogs in the Vineyard. So again, this is another game where your character changes by winning and losing conflicts, well, particularly losing conflicts. Uh, they take fallout, and these can give them scars, they can change their equipment, they can change their traits, they can improve or decrease stats, and your character evolves through play. And I remember having this conversation with Malcolm Craig a while back, where he was talking about having played an extended Dogs in the Vineyard campaign. Uh-huh. And he was talking about how his character started out as this very sort of open-minded, accepting, non-judgmental character who wanted to make life better for everyone. And by the end of the campaign, by the time he'd taken all these psychic scars and had the shit kicked out of him by demons and being betrayed by everyone, he was just rolling into town, shooting everyone on first sight and let God sort them out. I thought the moral of the story was you always shoot the steward because he's he's always (laughs) the one responsible for everything. (laughs) You're somebody, Scott, I've, I've witnessed like playing Apocalypse World and we've just been playing the game and suddenly you've got a new move because um, you, you've totally been encouraged to play to those things. To you know, Because in Apocalypse World, if you play Apocalypse World, you've got kind of uh, five different traits and you tick one and the GM ticks one or, or another player. T- anyway, two of them yeah. get ticked. And if you can use those two traits in the game, then you'll get XP through them. If you use the others, yeah. you don't get XP. So it kind of... It's a mechanism to encourage the player to focus on certain aspects of their character and perhaps different ones the next time, whatever. I think more importantly to not just rely on the same mode of play. Because yeah. if, you, if you've got a game that just encourages reward and your character is good at one thing, then it's very easy just to do that one thing over and over again and spam the XP. But I think what Apocalypse World does nicely is it does force you to behave in different ways and explore different aspects of your character and perhaps... Perhaps you know, your character is used to solving every problem through violence and suddenly you've got your, your social and intellectual stats that are ticked for that session and you've got to try to sweet talk people and think your way out of situations. And yeah, I really like that. Yeah, yeah. I found that intensely frustrating when we played Apocalypse World. I put the approach to that if I go into a situation, I do the most logically thing applicable to my character and then I find that every time I go to do what I would consider the logical thing, I find every other sack is fucking ticked rather than the ones yeah. that I would use in that situation. So everyone else runs away in advancement and there's me stuck in first gear. I really hated that. Yeah, no, that was the big difference I saw because I think you were both in the group and it was like, mm-hmm. you would play it that way, Matt, and Scott, you would find a way to use those two tick things almost every time to kind of get a tick. Um, yeah. So you were playing, well, not gaming it, you were playing the game. You were kind of following the lead of the game designer really and and that was what they wanted you to do 
I found it to be an interesting creative challenge. Yes, at the same time, it did allow me to activate cool new powers and stuff like that, which I also really enjoyed. But yes, it was sort of that feeling of, yeah, this is what I'd ordinarily do to do this, but that would be boring if I just did the same thing over and over again. Let's try something new. Oh, that was fun. Hmm. Whereas me, I, I find it kind of saps the realism out of it, or out, the fun out of it for me, for thinking I have to do something that's completely arbitrary because the mechanic says I get an advantage if I do this, whereas it wouldn't be how I would think of naturally acting in that particular situation. That completely destroys the fun yeah. for me. I never thought of it as being arbitrary. Like I say, I saw it as being a creative challenge. Tomato, tomato. But yeah, that, that I really, really, really didn't like that. Yeah, I can see that. That opens up uh, another aspect of this. It's something I used to do a lot more when I was younger, and I just wonder whether either of you two did this at all, where playing games that were very heavily based on advancement, where as you got XP or went up levels, you'd activate cool new powers and abilities and skills. Hmm. How much you'd actually sort of plan that and think about that in advance, that here's my character as it is now but here's my shopping list for what i want over time and this anticipation and sort of oh yeah you know i've finally saved up enough xp you know i can you know i I can fly now that kind Mm -hmm. of thing every white wolf game i've ever played oh really right yeah i mean that seems to be you know absolutely central to white wolf over time, it's more of a case of thinking, oh, I want that particular cool power, so I'll take the route that quickest gets me to that. But then over time, it might also be, well, I want to try and optimise my ability the best I can. So if I buy this at this point, that means that these abilities go up or I get pluses to this particular role. So then when I get this power, that I've also then got bonuses, and it kind of stacks level upon level upon level of what you buy with XP. Mm. But yeah, it's very much having to plan a route map of, right, I want this, therefore I need to earn this amount of XP in this time. And yeah, there's a reason I don't do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever find that more fun or more rewarding than if you'd just been able to create a character in the first place with all those abilities you'd wanted? No, I'd rather just have him all from the start because I've played too many games Mm. where you have to go through that roadmap. It's like I always get a bit peeved when GMs in certain games play. Oh, we've got to get, get that through play. Fuck no! I've played the building up exercise for so many goddamn years. I just want to get to the good shit that I never get to. I don't want this constant grind on a treadmill of constantly trying to get to the carrot that I'll never get to. I just want to have the good shit from the start and enjoy the character. Particularly as so many games like that are designed for very, very long-term plays, so you might have to play a game for a year before you get to the stage of activating the stuff that you actually signed up for in the first place. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, with some exceptions like your ongoing D&D games, Paul, very few of us actually play games that long anymore. And certainly with D&D, I found when I played a wizard recently, I did go through and look at, well, with my cleric now, I have gone through the spells and kind of shortlisted the spells I want. And then I've kind of chosen, okay, the few that I can get at first level. But then I've got my shortlist, but it's kind of a process of me getting the ones at first level that allows me then to sort of see other ones I'll get as I go up. But I haven't really got it planned out as such. I've just made a shortlist. But I'd say... A cool thing in advancement in the new 5th ed D&D is these paths that you get, but you don't get them until like second or third level. So my wizard, I'd got the idea that he was going to be an illusionist Mm. once he'd got to, I think it's third level and you get a, a magical path that you can take. But actually, once I'd played him for a while... I decided, no, I don't really want to be an illusionist. I've got a wand of firebolts and every spell I sort of take tends to be attack themed i'm not going to go for illusionist i'm going to go for this other path so i kind of like developing in a character a bit more organically and kind of finding out what they like as i play them Mm. how that kind of turns out for me and what i like doing with them so that that suits me really well yeah and i guess kind of older editions of DD didn't always address that very well that you could multi-class or you know take on another class but Mm. that would give your character more breadth but in terms of overall power level you'd end up dropping behind the people who were focused so if you had started out playing a fighter and after five levels of going up as a fighter you decided that actually this was a bit boring and you really wanted to be a cleric all along and yes you could multi-class as a cleric but everyone else would suddenly be able to do much more cool stuff than you or at least much more powerful stuff than you and you'd be lagging behind yeah so as a result that puts a kind of constraint on advancement that perhaps 
punishes people who don't start out with the right expectations or change their mind. And I think a lot of games do that with advancement. When you mentioned White Wolf, yeah, if you change your mind about the kinds of things that are important to you and you say spent half a year building up these powers and you're looking at stacking them on top of each other and then you actually decide to take things in a different way, you're almost back at square one, aren't you, Matt? Pretty much. Depending on what you want to change to, you might have some luck that certain stats or certain skills are used in your dice pools. But yeah, if you're on a dramatic shift, it's congrats, you're at the bottom again. And I guess that's one of the good things about BRP and you know certainly other games in that the advancement of the reward system is very much a reflection of how you're playing the character, that it's it's reactive. It's not something that you you have to plan out. If you start out playing an accountant, but then you go around shooting everyone, can't think why that sprang to mind, (laughs) then you'll find that your gun skills go up, Mm. uh, even if you didn't start out thinking that you were a mad gunman. Although knowing me, if I was the crazy gunman accountant, I would still find my skill at 20% because I would pass one roll and then keep (laughs) passing every advancement roll. One question I wanted to ask, Mm. we've talked very much about character development in terms of advancement and improvement and so on, but I think there is an aspect, particularly in Call of Cthulhu, but perhaps in some other games, of character development also being a degenerative process, that your characters are, are going insane, acquiring scars, phobias, just generally getting ground down by the the world and the horrors they're facing. How does that relate in your mind to character advancement? Is it a form of character advancement? Is it something different? Does it undermine the idea of character advancement? I think you have some nice little quirks because it's almost literally battle scars of the the story you've been through up until that point. So there could be almost like in terms of think the player rather than the character thinking nostalgically oh yeah i remember when i got that scar that's when we fought the ghouls down in the underground tunnels or yeah i remember when i got that eye blown out by the bad guy taking his one last shot at me it's kind of little reminders of the story that your character has been through all the way up until that point and sure they they can be problematic at certain points if you fail sand rolls or you you end up in a situation where those do become a problem but no i wouldn't i wouldn't call them debilitating i'd say if anything they're Nice little, uh, nice little touches. And I think, you know, when we think about f- characters in fiction, we talk about story arcs and that kind of involves them starting off, you know, perhaps just a lowly person, but then obviously the story is focusing on them and they acquire stuff and they become more powerful, they get more influence. But then the whole idea of an arc is it goes up and then it goes down again and they have some sort of decline. They, you know, they lose things, they they suffer problems and you know ultimately maybe they they die or you know they end up back where they started or whatever there's some kind of arc mm. and if we think about D, then it's one upward line until you die you're you know you're acquiring stuff and you're getting more levels and more power so it's a kind of an, an upward angle but with call of cthulhu you're getting that upward angle of acquiring skills and you know equipment and well when i say equipment like maybe tomes and so on it's a fairly shallow one though in comparison to dnd yeah it's a fairly shallow one that's fair to say but i guess you'll get an access to the world which is kind of an, an advancement you start off as somebody who doesn't know anything about the mythos and you acquire that but you know you've got that other curve which is the other line which is going down of, of you as you acquire stuff you're actually you know, heading down insanity. So you are almost, you could argue, is kind of constructing an arc of some kind. Because mm. as you get better, you're also getting worse. And I think that's a that's, that's something I like in, in, in the game. And just out of interest, have you ever seen, there's a, a video on YouTube, uh, I'll link to from the show notes, that is a lecture given by Kurt Vonnegut, where he's talking about story arcs, or at least the types of stories. And I mean, it's, it's a very kind of amusing lecture, as you might expect from Kurt Vonnegut. Mm. He talks about fiction being graphed out. Uh, he has this two-axis graph. The vertical axis is the character's fortune, and the horizontal axis is time. So he's graphing out the plots of different books of you know characters, you know, starting out from high positions and ending up in in penury. And the yeah, classic right. buildings roman is a, a kind of growth chart, and it reminded me very much of what you were talking about there. But it's a great way of sort of visualizing the different kinds of arc that a character can go through. 
which I don't think we see in a great deal of role-playing games. I mean, you talked about like Sorcerer, you can get a story out. It's not necessarily mm. one of growth and then decline. It's more of, of change, perhaps. Yeah. And the same in Cold City and, and so on. You know, are there many games where you you like have a an improvement and then it's kind of baked in that you then have a decline as opposed to just a sudden death, maybe? There are a few. I'm trying to remember. There was one... I remember playing a while back. Oh, yeah, you ran it, uh, Conspiracy of Shadows. Right, with the Doom mechanic. Yeah. So there is this idea that your your character is doomed. That mm. yeah, I think it's something you can buy when you get into Dire Straits. You can kind of like, mm. it's a bit like making a deal with death in Dungeon World, I think. Yeah, which again is a, is a pretty cool uh, mechanic. Although I've never actually used it, but, <laughs> but in theory. In terms of arcs, if it was uh, particularly a fate-based game, it would just be how long until I end up with the aspect on fire, because that happens every <laughs> goddamn time. You should just start with that one. Yeah. <laughs> Very short arc. It's just all—it's all uphill from here. <laughs> I was thinking earlier that we talked briefly about the hero system, and I guess GURPS is a bit like this, in that when you start out creating your character, you get additional points by buying disadvantages. So mm. these can be physical infirmities, they can be psychiatric conditions, they can be social problems, they can be the fact that there's someone out there who is hunting you and wants to kill you, all sorts of things. And one of the ways that you can spend your XP as you advance is actually by buying off those disadvantages. So your character isn't perhaps improving in the classic way, but they are resolving some of the nagging issues that have been plaguing their life. Mm. And yeah, I, th- I think that's another nice way of looking at those character arcs. Thank you. Well, it is that time once again when we say thank you to people. Thank you for a start to you, the listener, for listening to us. We, we like that. Thank you. And thank you very much to everyone who is backing us on Patreon. Uh, this keeps the podcast going and it warms the cockles of our cold, dead hearts. And we have a few new people to thank by name. Indeed. Thank you very much to Martin Saunders. And thank you to Andrew Butler. Thank you very much to Richard Streeby. And thank you to Stephen Wall. And thanks also to Michael Van Fleet. And thank you very much to Antonia Marchena, or Marchena. Apologies if I've mangled one of those, or well, I have mangled one of those. I apologise anyway. And thanks to Aaron Sturgill. And thanks again to Andrew Thuras. And thank you very much to Joel Finnis. Okay, well, you can all tick your podcast listening skill. <laughs> that must be up to like 95% by now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but what's it doing to their sanity, Paul? Oh, God, yeah, I didn't think about that. It's all about mm. the, the character arc. <laughs> <laughs> the more you listen, the more the sand goes down. Okay, well, until next time, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.